Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. All politics is local, and there's nothing more local than the murder of a young woman trying to protect her baby in a Chicago street gang shootout. The video that went viral. Or the character assassination of a columnist, a guy you know, simply for writing the truth about billionaire George Soros. Soros has spent billions of dollars, oh, I'm sorry, want to be accurate, tens of millions of dollars funding the political campaigns of radical left-wing catch-and-release prosecutors like Chase Boudin of San Francisco, George Gascon of Los Angeles, and Kim Fox, the Cook County State's Attorney. Bless her heart. And while Soros has just written an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal titled, Why I Support Reform Prosecutors. So I guess George is anticipating a blowback at the polls in November, and so are the Democrats for what he's done and what they've done electing these people. Now that George has written his op-ed, I've got a question for the Chicago Tribune and its woke union, the Tribune Guild, that falsely defamed me as a bigot for daring to write the truth about Soros and the left-wing prosecutors he elected. Here's the question. Is George Soros an anti-Semite? Will the Tribune demand Soros apologize for his invocation of the Soros tropes? They had fun peeling my skin. They tried to destroy my reputation and cast me as a bigot. Simply because I tried to warn people about what Soros was up to in Chicago and elsewhere around the country. Well, our guest today has something to say about Soros' latest admission. He's Rafael Menguel of the Manhattan Institute, a friend of this podcast and author of a supremely important book that I hope you'll order immediately. If you care about crime in urban areas like Chicago, you'll get it. The title, Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong, and Who It Hurts the Most. My friend Jeff Carlin is here as always, a reasonable man, a man of science who cares more about data than rhetoric. And I'm John Cass, husband, father, Orthodox Christian, editor-in-chief of your favorite website for common sense, johncassnews.com. And where are you with Soros and the Democrats anticipating blowback in November? As Chicago journalism avoid what's going on in Kim Fox's office with the resignation of a high-profile prosecutor, James Murphy? You're here with me on the Chicago Way podcast on WGN+. The Chicago Way is a deep cultural phenomenon. It's the Chicago Way. The Chicago Way. That's the focus. In a tower by the river, there lived a man. There was a man who took a stand. With pen and paper in his hand, 
Defeating foes in every ward with a pen more mighty than the sword. No escape from his ink lasso in a tower by the river. Castle. Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. Well, as promised, we have uh, Raphael Manguel and his book. And his book, and I recommend it most highly. And I think if you live in the any urban area where uh, you're concerned about crime, where you think that the prosecutors have been installed by George Soros to thwart you and thwart your ideas of law and order and criminal and criminal law and order, you should read it. Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most by Rafael Manguel. Uh, Sir, I would uh, I would posit, and maybe Jeff too, that the people who are hurt most are the ones who are in the back of the ambulance every day. At least those who get into the ambulance uh, and uh, are screaming on their way to the uh, emergency room after well, they've been wounded. That's certainly one subpopulation of the people who are hurt most. And, you know, by that, I was really referring to the pockets of concentrated crime that bear the brunt of this particular social problem. And we talk about crime often in national terms and citywide terms and statewide terms. But the reality is, is that, you know, while crime, I think, does affect societies writ large, it is a problem uh, a bigger problem for some than it is for others. Um, we see that it's very concentrated geographically, um, and we see that it's very concentrated demographically. And, you know, in the book, I give some examples of this, but, you know, in any given city in the United States, somewhere between three and 4% of street segments are going to see about 50% of all violent crime. Um, that is, you know, uh, uh, that was a really stark statistic to me when I first uh, came across it. It's called the rule of crime concentration. That experiment's been repeated in cities across the world. Say it, um, say again, how does it work? So basically a street segment is, you know, corner to corner, both sides of the street. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for this, but, but, but basically the rule is that somewhere around three to 4% of those segments in any given city are going to see about 50% of all violent crime. And the reason for this is, you know, a couple fold. One is that we know that, that, that crime is very demographically concentrated, right? So in Chicago, about 80% of homicide victims are, are black. Uh, and, and, you know, of course, black people don't make up anywhere near 80% oh. of the population in Chicago. In New York City, 95%, a minimum actually of 95% of all shooting victims are either black or Hispanic. And of course, blacks and Hispanics don't constitute anywhere near 95% of my home city's population. Um, but, you know, on the geographic point, you know, there's a theory of environmental criminology that basically says, like, look, there are some there are some physical built environmental factors, things like vacant lots, poorly lit streets, housing projects, et cetera, that we know are associated with higher levels of crime. And that explains why crime is more likely to happen on one block more than any other block, even though those two blocks are within the same police precinct or neighborhood. Um, and so it's a really fascinating phenomenon. But, you know, what it illustrates is that when we change criminal justice policy in a way that, in my opinion, raises the, the risk of serious violent crime occurring, 
we're not talking about increasing the risks faced by people living in the most elite urban enclaves, living in, you know, what have traditionally been low crime suburbs. Those places are going to continue to be relatively safe. You may see, you know, differences um, uh, start to crop up over time, but it's going to be nowhere near what the problem is uh, in the places that have already been struggling with crime to begin with. And I think Chicago is a really great place to illustrate this because, you know, you take the national homicide rate of 2019, we'll talk pre-pandemic, um, you're looking at a homicide rate of about five per 100,000, but West Garfield Park has a homicide yeah. rate of 131 per 100,000, which rivals some of the most dangerous places in the world, yeah. right? I mean, there are there are extremely infamous favelas, you know, in in the inner cities of Brazil that that come close to those numbers. Um, you know, if you were to take the 10 most dangerous community areas in Chicago, you'd get a, a collective homicide rate of uh, north of 60 per 100,000 which is, you know, uh, a pretty, pretty insane number. Wow. And and one of the, the things you kind of talk about in the book, which is smart here, and it's it's really good. And I will say, I've seen a lot of people who consider themselves left of center or, or more, more progressive or liberal saying, hey, we need to read this, uh, us collectively liberals, not me, but us, them, be, to, to really understand the flaws and what we're doing and, and the problems we're creating. But one of the myths that they carry a lot and that you kind of dispel here is the idea that, well, it's 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 poverty. You know, we need to dump cash on this to 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 put out this fire. And in reality, as you kind of got to, there's the, the, the data does not prove that out at all, right? Yeah, yeah. There there is has never been a consistent relationship between socioeconomic indicators like poverty and violent crime, right? And and it should make sense to us intuitively when you really take a step back and think about it, because if you look at the nature of what drives a lot of gun violence in cities like Chicago. What you see are, you know, police consistently reporting that these uh, disputes arise out of perceived slights, out of perceived disrespect, out of ongoing gang beefs. You don't get any richer when you shoot somebody. I tell the story in the book of a guy uh, named TJ Jimenez, who uh, a lot of people know. Uh, this was a case uh, out of the city of Chicago, the West Side, where a guy who had recently um uh been awarded i think it was like 25 million dollars yeah. from the city of chicago for mm-hmm. a wrongful conviction so you know uh, this guy's released from prison given all this money uh could go and start his life anywhere in the world and yet he decides to go start up his old gang again and films himself riding around a west side neighborhood uh where he then shoots somebody at point blank range even though that person was unarmed um and so, you know, what what I think is at root of this is is much more uh, of a cultural um, phenomenon. And, you know, again, when we look at the data on poverty, what we see is, for example, during the Great Depression, crime did not rise in the United States during the Great Depression. It didn't rise in the United States during the Great Recession. In fact, during the Great Recession, the unemployment rate nearly doubled, and yet the homicide rate declined 15% during those years. Um, take my home city of New York. 1989, which is the year before the city peaked at 2,262 homicides, compare that to 2016, which is the year before the city hit its valley of 292 homicides, the poverty rate has remained essentially unchanged in the city. In fact, it got slightly worse. All right. And then within um, different jurisdictions, you'll see that various uh, culturally identifiable groups will suffer poverty at, at disparate rates, and yet those rates don't track neatly with the rates at which those culturally identifiable groups engage in serious violent crime. So here in New York City, 
um, you know, black uh, New Yorkers uh, suffer poverty at a rate that's actually lower than the rates of Hispanic New Yorkers and Asian New Yorkers. And yet the latter two um, communities are drastically underrepresented in violent crime compared to uh, black New Yorkers, which, you know, again, I think weighs against the idea that what's at the root of this is, you know, some kind of socioeconomic phenomenon that the government is well positioned to spend its way out of. Um, I, I just don't think that's the case. And the sooner that we understand that, the sooner we can focus on doing the things that we know are going to make a difference in the immediate term. I, uh, we, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but I was recently on the, the Daily Show with Trevor Noah. And you know, he made an interesting point because I, I was I was telling him, you know, he, he asked about the degree to which uh, social spending on, say, education could help mm-hmm. reduce crime. And I, I pointed out that in Chicago uh, over a two-year <laughs> period, you had a massive increase in per people spending in public yeah. education. And yet that was a period that tracked with one of the biggest homicide increases um, that the city had seen. And he said, well, you know, fair point. However, if you're, you know, building a soccer team, right, and you want to win a championship, you start years down the road by building the farm system and recruiting, et cetera. And, you know, again, fair point. But the, the problem with that argument is that people are dying now. Right. People are dying today and they need help now. We can't wait. 10 years in the hopes that we'll solve one of the most intractable social problems that no society has ever figured out how to solve. The problem with talking soccer with someone with a British accent is that everyone uh, uh, believes. South African. South African. Well, yeah. okay. South African. Pardon me. But uh, everyone believes that that accent gives you a wisdom in the game of soccer. The point is you start with a defense with a spine and a goalie to keep the goals, to keep goals going into your net. And the same thing with the city, you have to protect the people, the the decent law abiding people of all communities. And if you don't, it creates the kind of lawlessness that uh, rough uh, Mr. Manguel explains to us. I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the, we, you talked about, and then one of the stories that's, that leads off your, the book is, is the uh, Brittany Hill murder, which was, yeah. took place here in Chicago. Yeah. And it, and you, you draw the, like the comparison, the idea of that, you know, this little kid, the little kid dies. And for those who don't know the story, but, uh, the, you know, people are outside. This woman's holding her child, small child with her. Two guys roll up, unload, you know, countless bullets, and the mother dies. And, the- they wave the baby waves at the people coming up at the right. car. Yeah, she thinks it's like friends. You just mm-hmm. you know to, to show just right. how the. I mean, that just illustrated the shattering of innocence like nothing I've ever seen. Yeah, you're right. And 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 to your point is that 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 victim had nothing to do with. I mean, nothing to do, but had nothing to do with policy. Nothing to do with the idea of we're being policing and nothing that it was about the community's you know re- interaction and reaction to itself. And it's it it just signals that, like you say, we we don't really see the whole picture when we're only seeing very small pieces of data that are are stripped and, and blown out of proportion. And it comes often in the form of saying that police brutality and and bad cops and cops not you know or just too many cops are, are the ones who are causing this this quote unquote violence of numbers. But it's that's really not true at all. No, it's not. And you know, the main reason that I let off with that case was because I think it so perfectly illustrates one of the biggest flaws in the, the sort of uh, argument of 
um, you know, the the sort of reform movement for for more radical change, you know, which is that we over police and we over incarcerate, we systematically deny second chances. You know, the the, the video, uh, um, the the Brittany Hill murder was captured on video. Mm-hmm. There was a Chicago police uh, uh, surveillance camera that was installed in that neighborhood, Austin uh, neighborhood on the west side of Chicago. Um, and so they were able to make an arrest pretty quickly because the shooting was, was, was captured on tape. And one of the individuals who was charged, uh, in that murder is a guy with nine prior felony convictions, Yeah, nine prior yeah. felony convictions. God knows how many arrests that didn't result in convictions. God knows how many misdemeanor convictions. These are nine felony convictions, including for second degree murder. And yet he was still out on the street. So I think, you know, when any rational normal human being, whatever side of the political aisle you you fall on. Everyone asks the same question when I tell them a story like that, which is what on earth is this person doing on the street? And they are shocked. The problem with that sense of shock is that it shouldn't exist because this is in fact not particularly uncommon, right? There is a, a, there is a, a glaring incongruity between what the narrative about criminal justice in America is and what the reality is. The narrative is that we systematically deny second chances that we are, you know, locking people up and throwing away the key for simple possession of, you know, a couple of marijuana joints. Mm -hmm. Um, But the reality is, is that we give even cold hearted killers second chances time and again. And the people who pay the price, the people who bear the risk associated with that kind of decision making are not, you know, us on this podcast are not the people who can afford to live in nice suburbs and in, you know, exclusive high rise buildings and in downtowns. It's the people who are stuck living, you know, on the west side of Chicago, on the south side of Chicago, you know, in in, in southwest Baltimore and northern Philadelphia, um, you know, people who can't get out. And, you know, it's about time that we start to see that this reality that they've built up in their heads isn't reality at all. Right. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. you, you can say like, oh, well, the Brittany Hill case, this is just one anecdote. But I tell the story, not because it's a heart wrenching anecdote anecdote and it is but because it's illustrative of what the data show is in fact a trend if you look at the typical person leaving prison in the united states they had about 10 prior arrests and five prior convictions before they got to prison the most recent time that does not sound to me like a society that systematically denies second chances and if you're talking about chicago specifically you know the typical person charged with either a shooting or a homicide has 12 prior arrests 20% 20% of them have more than 20 prior arrests. Right? At some point, we have to hold the system to account for failing to incapacitate people who have, through every aspect of their outward-facing being, communicated to society that they have no intention of playing by our rules. Uh, oddly, some two things have happened in Chicago recently that speak directly to what our guest is saying, and he's, he is Rafael Manguel and the great book, Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong, and Who It Hurts the Most. And you know who it hurts the most, the poor. So uh, a couple things, guys. What's happened is James Murphy, the senior prosecutor for uh, Kim Fox, has resigned and publicly condemning her for doing exactly what uh, Mr. Mangual has, has uh, told us about. 
And the second thing is that uh, my old friend, not really friend, George Soros, uh, comes out in the Wall Street Journal to mm-hmm. publicly admit that he's uh, he's backing these rogue, or not he wouldn't call them rogue, yeah. these prosecutors, liberal prosecutors. And I thought that the Chicago Tribune Guild, uh, and I don't even think I know, uh, defamed me for suggesting he did so. Yeah. Now, he's also arguing about decarceration and uh, the things that uh, our guest is uh, arguing about. So what would be your response, Raphael? Well, he is um, he's dead wrong. I mean, I I actually penned a response to his to his article that should be going up at some point uh, today. But look, I mean, he starts his piece really well. Right. I I think one of the first uh, sentences uh, is, is that Americans desperately need a more thoughtful discussion about our response to crime. I agree. The problem is he doesn't give us that. He he, mm-hmm. he fails to give us what he says that we desperately need. I mean, it, it's really just a collection of of, of data free platitudes. Um, you know, which which is frustrating because this is somebody who you know is by his own admission seeking to have a very outsized impact on some of the most serious policy matters facing uh, urban America, and and yet he he just fails to rise to the occasion of making anything close to what I think would be considered a, a, a sort of uh, a coherent and robust argument rooted in the sort of data that I think the argument needs to be rooted in in order to, to really be convincing. I mean, you know, the one statistic that he, he, he actually gives and, and really leans into is this idea that um, Black people in the United States are five times as likely to be sent to jail than white people. He says, without explanation, uh, you know, that this is uh, an injustice, that it undermines our democracy. Um, but, but that's really innuendo, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, he's just, there's an implicit claim that the incarcerations that uh, lead to that kind of statistic are mostly, if not overwhelmingly, illegitimate. And, you know, that 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 couldn't be further from the truth. Um, you ask, well, you know, why, why, why else would, would that kind of uh, disparity exist if, if injustice wasn't afoot? Um, well, let's start with the fact that, you know, and I take no pleasure in saying this, but, you know, there's there was a study done of homicide trends by the Bureau of Justice Statistics uh, looking at a 28 year period of 1980 to 2008 um, and found that black people commit homicide offenses in the United States at a rate of almost eight times uh, the rate for whites. Again, I don't point this out, you know, uh, uh, to dunk on on Soros. This, I don't take any pleasure in reporting this truth. But, but when you just present a disparity without a word about what its causes might be, that that's not right. that's not a responsible way of making the argument that injustice is afoot. Because you know, again, that's a really serious charge that is made with the intent of making serious policy changes down the road that can have potentially a very detrimental impact. And in fact, I think they do have a very detrimental impact on the most precious commodity that you know communities have, which is the safety of the people who live within them. Um, you know, of course, when you account for the underlying realities of criminal offending and criminal victimization, those two disparities um, go a much longer way toward explaining why uh, you see the kind of disparities in law enforcement statistics. And this is something, you know, as I say in the last chapter of the book, that really, I think, animates, you know, a, a lot of the reform movements, this failure to look at the other side of the ledger, right? We're told to focus exclusively on disparities with respect to the costs 
associated with the administration of justice with law enforcement. Um, and it's true that those costs are disproportionately borne by low-income minority communities. However, that's not the only output of the criminal justice system. That's not the only output of policing, right? There are mm-hmm. also benefits associated with these programs, and those benefits are also unequally distributed, right? If you look at the homicide decline between 1990 and 2014, that added a full year of life expectancy to black uh, for black men in this country. A full year of wow. life expectancy. The public health equivalent in, of that in is 20 years. In 20 years is basically uh, eliminating obesity altogether. Right. That is a massive, massive, massive achievement for white men. It added 0.14 years of life expectancy, nowhere near the kind of gain. Right. So so when people argue, whether implicitly or explicitly, that the criminal justice system, that policing institutions are designed and operated for the purpose of oppressing low income minority communities, I ask the following question, because I know that when you ask anyone at the helm of either of these kinds of institutions, they all tell you some version of the same thing, which is except for, you know, the kind of progressive prosecutors that Soros is backing. Most prosecutors, most police chiefs, most, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, corrections officials, what they want to do is enhance public safety. That's Mm -hmm. their mission. And when they succeed in their mission, it is not high-income white communities that benefit. It is low-income minority communities that benefit the most. And so why on earth would a system supposedly designed and operated to the detriment of low-income minority communities so disproportionately benefit those very same communities when the system achieves its stated ends as stated by mm-hmm. the people at the system's helm? It makes no sense. Right. It's it's it's, it's argues that there's a conspiracy out there. And don't get me wrong. I mean, historically, this country, there have been plenty of conspiracies that have targeted minorities and black people in slavery and all that stuff is like the history of policing in this country. Sure. But most of it was out of of their hatred. The race hatred was out in the open. Right. Absolutely. I'm I'm sorry, Jeff. Go on. But but the but the the, what you talked about and in kind of the the biggest thing they're missing here is is they're just looking at a, a closed system which is just cops civilians and criminals cops civilians and criminals cops civilians and criminals when as you're saying it's it's a larger picture that they're not looking at including prosecutors including judges including you know uh gangs from south america i mean there are way more impact way more things that if you took all the slum numbers and john and anybody listening knows that i'm a numbers guy i love the idea of data i love science i love that it doesn't lie to you that's where you start to see the picture where, well, this with money needs to go, not where you're saying, and then you're not looking at it as, as a full picture. And when you start to do that, you get the idea that there are not, there are changes that need to happen, but not the changes that are being proposed. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, nothing in my book is an argument along the lines that the criminal justice system is perfect, that, you know, policing uh, is a perfect institution, that cops don't make mistakes. No one, you know, with, with any kind of, of of sense of reality would make that argument. The question is, is how imperfect is our criminal justice system? Is that problem overstated or understated? And how do we go about addressing those imperfections? I think that reforming the system at the margins, being very, very careful in how we go about that mission is the way that we should do it. Um, people like George Soros think that we need radical change, quote unquote, reimaginings of justice. Right. Uh, you know, I disagree. 
And I disagree because I think that approach is functionally throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And when you do that, again, um, you really run the risk of exactly what we've seen happen over the last, you know, uh, five, 10 years, yep. which is public safety starts to erode. And then you get a situation in which, look, you know, we have almost two dozen major cities in America that have either broken their all-time homicide records or have come very, very, very close to flirting with them. Um, you know, so when when people tell you, oh, you know, crime's not as bad as it was in the 1990s, it's like, yeah, in the aggregate, but but no one lives in the aggregate. And there are certainly lots of places in this country where crime is not just as bad as it was in the 1990s, but worse. Mm-hmm. So what um, do we do? What do we do about addressing the lead political actors who are changing and changing policy in order in what you would say and I would say, and Jeff and many others would say is an irresponsible uh, direction. And that is, that is Kim Fox, and uh, who's the state's attorney, yeah. and Tony Preckwinkle, her boss, her protector. Uh, b- both of them support the idea of George Soros, what George Soros p- pushes, and he's given them, he's given uh, Kim Fox at least $2 million in political funds. So how do you how do you fight that when the newspapers don't even want to address the fact that Mr. Murphy has resigned in a with a blistering letter against Kim Fox? How can you even have a dialogue about standing up to the change when the media is seems to be in the tank for the uh, the uber progressive side of this debate? I mean, my approach has always been to just push relentlessly with data, with pieces that are, you know, even keeled in, in terms of how they're presented. And, and, and by getting out into the spaces where this narrative predominates and challenging the people who are perpetuating it, telling them that they're wrong and coming prepared to discuss the data that proves it. Um, you know, uh, again, I think you know, that's really what this book was about. It's why, you know, I, I really wanted to go with a mainstream publisher. It's why, you know, um, we, we've, mm-hmm. we've made such a push on the media side, um, you know, and I hope that we're having some success. I mean, I, you know, I uh, definitely did not expect to, to get a hearing, uh, you know, on The Daily Show with Trevor <laughs> Noah. I think that was really great. Um, you know, so so maybe the tide is starting to turn. But I, I do think that if you continue to beat this drum, it becomes increasingly hard for even uh, you know the the political elites at, at at the front of this movement to ignore the dead bodies um, that have have been uh, killed by people who shouldn't have been out on the street to begin with, right? When when someone right. commits a serious crime, is arrested for their you know their third gun offense, and then gets released on their own recognizance, and then subsequently you know is, is charged with Real killing offense. somebody right. Right. um you know eventually that becomes hard to ignore so you know i think it's on people like us to continue to highlight those stories uh, get them out in into the you know in into the media into the conversation and and force the hand of people who have gone unchallenged for far too long it, and it's it, like the in the hill story i mean those guys are out back out in the street before she's been in, in process like her you know her body's even processed by the the, the corner here so it's it, it it boggles the mind that anybody can make that that argument that we should pr- improve the lives or we're putting too many just theoretically putting too many people in prison and lo- too long and too jail so their lives are being impacted so we're gonna pull let them all out 
well, what about the people who are dying, whose lives are being more impacted? So they're casualties of your change because the casualties of, of not changing are the ones who are in jail. I mean, that, that, that even in that basic instinct doesn't make any sense at all. And of course it does. Well, yeah, it of course it does. The, the argument uh, is uh, one of race that, uh, that uh, you are being victimized by the justice system because of your race. And that undercuts the good people and the survivors of those who've been murdered. Mm -hmm. Same thing that Raphael was talking about with the, you know, this, if you take the small block and you have uh, a crack house on it and uh, another area where, where a lot of violence and gang activity occurs and you're going to have more crime. The same idea. So it's just extending that space into a larger community is what they're doing. Yeah, no, and I I think you're right, John, about, you know, race being very much at the root of this movement, because it is, uh, you know, it's it's something that intimidates people from pushing back on. Right. Mm-hmm. No one wants to be seen as a racist. No one wants to be seen like they're not an ally to communities that have been, you know, sort of uh, traditionally disadvantaged uh, mm-hmm. over American history. You know, my argument is that, hey, you know, enforcement statistics aren't the only evidence of disparities in the criminal justice data sphere. Look at the victimization disparities. Yeah. They are just as stark, exactly. just as persistent. And and so if you if you say that you are for uh, the the protection uh, and the saving of black lives, and I urge you to please reconsider the mass decarceration program. Please reconsider uh, the, the the mass depolicing program. This is not going to help save black lives. And you know, uh, again, the race issue is why you know I dedicate an entire chapter to the systemic racism argument in the yes. book because I think it's so very important. You know, the disparities on their own do not tell the whole story there are other factors race neutral factors that 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 explain in large part why these disparities exist and when you take those factors into account the disparities shrink if not to nothing to to a level that is much 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 lower than what you would be led to believe if you were just a casual consumer of this public debate in a way that undercuts the central claim of the reformers i mean there's there's a an example i give in the book of uh, a report from the National Academies of Sciences on incarceration. There's a chapter there on the causes of incarceration, and they they explicitly look at um, the question of whether incarceration reflects some kind of systematic racial bias. And I'm going to read you a direct quote from that report. This mm-hmm. is, you know, the National Academy of Sciences, mainstream social scientists, very left of center, right? Like, I, I don't think there's anyone there that was, you know, sort of hoping to make a sort of James Q. Wilsonian case here. They say, quote, racial bias and discrimination are not the primary causes of disparities in sentencing decisions or rates of imprisonment. Overall, statistical when statistical controls are used to take account of offense characteristics, prior criminal records and personal characteristics, black defendants are on average sentenced somewhat, but not substantially more severely than whites. Right. That that sounds a lot yeah. less accusatory than the way people like George Soros frame the argument when they say, hey, black people are five times more likely to end up in, in jail than white people. Right? If we were just more nuanced about how we had the race conversation with respect to our criminal justice system, I think we could get a lot further. You would like that. I would like that. And Jeff, perhaps, <laughs> and others would like that. But unfortunately, the politics doesn't work that way, guys. 
the 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 race is is as a bludgeon is uh, dripping and with blood and dangerous, and the people who swing it are those who are uh, of the hard left and backed by media in this town and others. Yeah. So that's why it's hard to get this argument through. But I mean, for example, okay, and I'd like your both of your your opinions on this. For example, there's many police, uh, many uh, uh, a few candidates running for mayor here who've said, you know, let the police be the police, meaning make proactive decisions on the street to to cut down crime. This immediately, this is translated by Lori Lightfoot and by her minions in the Chicago press corps as supporting the lawlessness of John Burge. Like, the, if you support this, if you support proactive policing, then you are a racist thug who, dis, who wants to destroy black people and beat them up and make them confess to crimes they didn't commit. If you have yeah. that that kind of that kind of that kind of parallel reinforced in the media, particularly in, by the Chicago Tribune in recent days, uh, how can you hope to have a discussion? How can you hope to have a discussion? And it's Please not some- it's, it's so crazy. You're absolutely right, John. I mean, and the conversation is a thing. Like, and started to cut you out there, Raphael. But yeah. the, the the whole thing, the idea that you went the Trevor Noah thing, and I keep coming back to it because it you can't the, the people who are seeing that tweet and seeing it and are are opening their eyes to the fact that while I'm I believe in progressiveness, I believe in justice. Uh, I think we're doing it wrong, guys. Like, and and that's what we've been. John and I have been screaming here for in our podcast for three hundred and fifty some episodes that people don't see that they're born into it, they're raised into it, and they're being fed it now that this 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 false narrative. And it goes both ways. It's the same thing. Same to be said for the kid on the street who grows up in that corner where it's the only universe he knows is is drug crimes and violence. And then he comes, he's born into it and he doesn't see the outside world. And we just, it's like, we're, we're butting into these, these weird instances where we're, we're running across each other and saying, Hey, 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 my world's on fire. No, no, your world's on fire. It just doesn't, it's just, and we're being fed it through a, a false data. And the data as you keep saying, proves that that's, that we're not seeing the full picture. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, when you talk about policing, I think that's a perfect example. I mean, you know, there have been such major improvements in policing as an institution over yes. the decades. It has become such a much more professionalized institution. You have higher rates of educational attainment among officers mm-hmm. who do a much better job, who take a much more sophisticated approach to enforcement, using data to inform deployments, using uh, uh, data to identify targets, right? And just, and just, you know, even with respect to the outcomes that progressives care about, like use of force, have gotten so much better. Between 1974 and 1978, the Chicago Police Department wounded 523 people. It's about 100 people a year. In 2019, you had 34 total firearm discharges. That's it. And, and, That's a and massive the, decrease. And those 70s numbers were, were, were lax in reporting because exactly. anybody who's trying to look at data from Chicago cops pre-95 uh, you know, yeah. or whatever, it's almost impossible. Exactly. And so, you know, this is a massive improvement. But my big problem is that it's not at all reflected in the rhetorical posture of our national debate about policing. If you look at the protests, you know, in the 1960s of the Chicago Police Department, then you see just as much fervor as you saw in 2020. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't be the case. We have to 
we have to get people to sit down and understand that things have changed. They've changed for the better. Maybe the, the change isn't happening as, as fast as some people want it to happen. But what we're going to do is destroy communities if we go too fast um, and too far. And that's exactly what what what's happening. And I think one of the reasons that you have such acceptance um, or seeming acceptance of this terrible reality that we're seeing with respect to the crime uptick is has a lot to do with the degrees of removal between a lot of you know sort of progressive allies and politically active uh, people and the sorts of, of problems associated with street crime uh, that that I think animate daily life for far too many communities. I mean, they have no idea what it's like to live in a place where someone gets shot every day. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know if I talk about this in the book. I can't remember if I tell the story, but but I do, you know, like to tell the story when I give public talks. I mean, I'm sure the two of you remember the DC sniper situation. Yep. Yeah. Right. So, you know, you could you could go back and watch news coverage and people would be telling newscasters and beat reporters, you know, that they would zigzag through parking lots um, when right. they were leaving work late or, you know, drive past the E on their gas tank so as not to stop at a gas station late at night out of fear that they might be, you know, shot by the DC snipers. Now, mind you, the the chances of you being shot by the DC snipers were on par with, you know, being struck by like, basically, I mean, the, you know, the sure. risk was not large. And yet in some of the most elite zip codes with people who, you know, are, are very rational actors, you had them taking these drastic steps to, you know, change their routine activities out of a sense of fear. Now, imagine what it would be like to live in a community like West Garfield Park, like Austin, like Inglewood, where gunfire is a regular part of daily life. Yeah. Imagine the psychological toll that that takes, right? And so mm-hmm. I, I think... I you know, guarantee you what would happen is that editorial boards would be demanding that Kim Fox be uh, recalled and dumped. And yeah. so would Tony Preckwinkle. And, and that's exactly that. what we saw in San Francisco. And I suspect that that has a lot more to do with the fact that the well-to-do parts of, the, of, of that of that city were also dealing with the disorder yeah. that that right. the policies uh-huh. of Chester Boudin had wrought. If you paid you know, $6 million for a house, you didn't want to walk out onto your lawn and see a tent city. And that's exactly what was happening. So when the costs are borne by people who are, you know, helping to make these decisions, I think that's when we start to see the change. But again, as I say in the book, the problem is, is that crime has always been a discrete issue for very small slices of America. You know, only 2% mm-hmm. of U.S. counties see about 50% of U.S. murders and about 60% of U.S. counties don't see any murders at all in a given year. So it becomes very, very difficult to get people living in that 60% of counties to understand the plight, you know, the people living in the more dangerous parts of the country. And, you know, hopefully this book does that. Well, it's it's a great read. And like I said, the, the data stuff is interesting. And, and I don't know if you've done any of this in Raphael, but I'd love to get your your data focus, uh, laser guided analysis uh, on the idea of officers and post you know higher training, because that's a, a trend that comes up all the time when I talk to cops who are really trying to, to do you know, work to make things better. And we had, uh, you know, John O'Malley, who was former deputy uh, mayor of uh, uh, safety here for Chicago on. And that was one of the things he said to us is that, you know, 
the, you get guys who get hired, they're on the street and they never get another piece of training for their, their entire yep. career. And, yeah. and those are the, and, and those are the gaps and the problems that we're not addressing. If we want to say that, Hey, policing's a problem. Well, then that's your starting point, not freeing right. the, get, getting, letting the criminals go free. That's not your starting point. Your starting point should be cops need to have upgraded training, no adjust with society. And that, as far as I've been told is just doesn't happen. Yeah, and, and and that is a problem that is exacerbated by the defund the police movement, right? If your right. if your whole right. idea is you want to divert funding away from these institutions, well, then you can't be surprised when those institutions perform uh, poorly uh, in the wake of that, right? And I think this is a theme throughout the broader criminal justice system. It's a, it's a kind of starve the beast mentality. People who don't like these institutions, you know, want to abolish them, and so one way to go about that is to continuously deny them the funding that they need to perform optimally so that they can then point to the suboptimal performance and say, see, these institutions don't work. Um, you see this with incarceration. People consistently lament, you know, the conditions in jails like Rikers Island here in New York or in other prisons across the country and overcrowding. And then yet every time that someone proposes increasing carceral capacity by building a new facility, they say no new jails. Mm. You know, so you can't you can't have it both ways. I am very much of the mind that our criminal justice system in all aspects is drastically underfunded. It's one of the reasons why bail reform became such an issue. It became an issue because of the amount of time that people stand to spend in pretrial detention, which is almost entirely a function of resources. And if we would just dedicate ourselves to putting resources where they need to be, we can get the system to operate more efficiently, more equitably, more justly. I think that uh, the people who are behind decarceration and defunding of police and decarceration of uh, jails know exactly what they're doing. They're working on a premise that they will destroy the semblance and belief in law and order, and uh, they'll replace it with anarchy and chaos, which promotes fear. And George Soros understands this, and Perhaps the minions like Tony Preckwinkle and uh, Kim Fox don't don't get it, but I think most of the hard uh, left elite know it, and I think I know it, and so do you, Raphael, and I think you see where it's going, and uh, you're making a valiant effort through reason and understanding to try to bring this to the American people. Thank you. Am I off? Am I off base? Am I off base with that? (laughs) No, no, I don't think you are, sir. So, Raphael, thank you for for being here. And if uh, if you want to get this book, please do. (laughs) Please do, and just order it. Criminal injustice: What the push for decarceration and depolicing gets wrong, and who it hurts most, by Raphael Manguel of the Manhattan Institute. And uh, apparently he tells us he's written a response to uh, the George Soros thing for uh, City Journal. Yeah, check that out too. Uh, Raphael, do you yep. need any quotes from me for your response? <laughs> um, I'll tell you what, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can fit one in later this afternoon. All right. You can, you call <laughs> me and I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a statement for George Sounds Soros good. and the, and the uh, other lefties in the Tribune Guild. Okay, thank you for joining us. And, Thanks, uh, Raphael. Really good. Again. 
Yeah, I'd love to pick your brain Thank some you more. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, always happy to come back on. It's one of my favorite podcasts, so I appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, buddy. Thank, Thank you. you, sir. All right, bye now. Bye. bye. So for Rafael Manguel, author of this great book we talked about, Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts the Most. Manguel is the Rick O'Neill Fellow and Head of Research for the Policing and Public Safety Initiative at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of City Journal. And I, I expect to uh, see the George Soros story there any day now. Yeah. And maybe I'll write one, too. <laughs> and, for, when, and for Jeffrey Carlin. That's me. My friend, co-host, master of sound, master of camping arts, master of physics. <laughs> and for me, John Cass, husband, father. Orthodox Christian, chief editor-in-chief at johncastnews.com. Thanks for joining us on the most difficult but important subject, decarceration and depolicing. Join us again next time, won't you, on the Chicago Way podcast on WGN+.